Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to episode 5 of season 5. 5, 5, yes, well, that's it. And today is August the 2nd, 2020. I'm Rudolf, I am your host, speaking to you from the outskirts of Austria's lovely capital, Vienna. And I'm really happy to have you back for today's new episode, the episode which runs under the title Academic Esotericism, hmm, quite interesting, and our guest today is Henrik Bogdan, professor at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. Right, and uh, before we go to speak with him, of course, uh, and next to saying hello to you and thank you for returning to the podcast, I would like to just give you a few little informations, not many today, and you will be happy that we advance quickly, I'm sure. First of all, of course, I need to say that again, please go to the Source Hermes website. That's www.sourcehermes.com, D-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com, because that's where you can find all further information that you might need about our guests, about all the other episodes that have already been on this show. It's quite a big number already now. And um, well, I hope that you will go there and also see a little bit the entries about the music that we played, about the artists there, because as you know, more and more artists send me their music and they are listeners of this podcast and their music is also creating new ambience for this podcast. Also today, a little more about that in one minute. So go there. And as I said, not only you have to show notes and all that, but you also can give me feedback from the website. There is a contact form, which some of you use. There is, of course, also the voicemail that hardly everyone, anyone uses, but sometimes I get a voicemail. Would be lovely to hear your voices though from time to time. So do send me a voicemail from the website. And uh, you can always also send me an email, which is info at It's always nice to hear from you. Uh, so recent comments were also that people were happy to, would be happy to have some other topics here, like about druidism, which is a very good idea. I think I need to consider that. Oh, there is so many things we could talk about here on this podcast and um but let me know other things that you might want to hear. It's really, I'm really happy about your ideas, your comments, and also your criticism if needed and where needed. I try to do my best. Right. The other information I need to give you today again is the Thoth Hermes Academy because we have now started bookings. And those tickets for the five great lectures that you will be able to attend live. It's live lectures 
across the internet on Zoom. So if you're interested, please go to the Thoughts Hermes website. Uh, it's uh, When you go to the main page there, to the homepage, you'll find Thoughts Hermes Academy right in front of you. Click on it and you'll find all the information just to give you a hint who will be our lecturers in that first series. Hopefully there will be more series if all goes well. In the first series, we have great names like Carl Abrahamson to start with on August, well, in three weeks, on August 23rd. We'll be followed three weeks later by Angel Millar, then Frater U.D., David Harrison, and finally, early November, David Beth. So five great people, five great names who have interesting talks for you. All the details, I won't give them to you now here. Don't want to hold you back for too long, but go on the website. You can book there for those lectures. And of course, after the lecture, there's always a question and answer uh, session live where you live can ask your questions and we'll get the answer from our lecturer. So prices, how to book and all of that, you'll find on the Thought Hermes website. Last thing that I mentioned before we play a little bit of music is, of course, our Patreon challenge. Yes, I called that the Patreon challenge already last time. As I said, the number of listeners of this podcast is, and I'm very happy about that, increasing week by week. We are now at an average of over 2,700 already per week since the beginning of the year. And I said once we have 4% of this average that will be also patrons of this podcast, I will stop doing publicity for becoming a patron. So if you want to get rid of me talking about that, do become a supporter. And even if you don't want to get rid of me to talk about it, please become a supporter. Go on patreon.com and look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast or go to the website, click on the Patreon button there and become a supporter of this show. We need your support. It's without that support, we cannot sustain such an adventure like this podcast. It's great that some of you, well, over 40 of you have already become supporters. Thanks a lot to you over there who are patrons of this podcast. And thanks to all of you who consider that now and will become one. Right. Okay, now it's time for our first piece of music. And it's a returner. It's a returner, not the music itself, but the composer. I promised to you, the musician, uh, two episodes ago it was, I promised you that he will return on this podcast with a full with a full show. We played one piece of him in the episode with Charlotte Rogers, which was episode three of season five. And then I promised that he will come back. Um, with three pieces in one of the shows and that's today so his name is Hassan Hassan is a Lebanese Phoenician as he prefers saying to say Hassan Ismail of course I need to say his, his family name of course sorry about that he is a Lebanese Phoenician artist born in Sidon in Lebanon in 1993 so a really young guy and uh, since he was 10 years old he had that mysterious love for mysticism and was going on a search for truths to solve this mystery called life. And he's a self-taught artist and to, through his music he discovered uh, 
a lot of new things also through contemplation he became one with his music he resides today in phoenix arizona um, which is a nice choice because he's phoenician as he says not lebanese so in phoenix arizona where he performs locally and he has already published three albums you'll find more about him on our website um, in the show notes of course but today it's three pieces of music by Hassan Ismail that we're going to hear. And let's go right into the first piece, which is called, well, Cedars of Phoenicia. Hassan Ismail. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Hassan Ismail's Cedars of Phoenicia. A wonderful piece written and performed by Hassan Ismail. Um, and I really like that type of music and we will have more, two times more this ep in this episode. Henrik Bogdan. Well, I don't think to those of you who are reading a lot and who are also interested in books about esotericism, etc., that I have to introduce Henrik to you. Henrik is a professor at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, a professor of religious studies and the history of religions. That's his department. But um, his speciality is, of course, um, the research areas are Western esotericism, new religious movements and secret and initiatory societies, such as Freemasonry. Um, I am very happy that we have him on this show because it is a good sign that the academic world also gets more and more entwined with the practitioners in esotericism and that Henrik has accepted to come on a podcast like ours makes me really happy. And I'm also happy to say that he will not be the last one that over the next uh, couple of months, I would think, and um, we have at least two more academics who have agreed to come on this podcast. So a very interesting approach. And you will find out when you hear Henrik speak. He has a lot of highly interesting things and he's a very deep thinker and gives all new kinds of aspects about our esoteric and occult worlds that we all love so much. So I'm really happy to have him here. And as now always since the beginning of season five, before we go to that interview, I'll read you uh, two pages from a book by Henrik Bogdan. That book is called Western Esotericism and Rituals of Initiation. And the introduction, the short introduction I'm going to read is quite a good intro in our topic about what we are going to talk in a few minutes. The academic study of Western esotericism has in recent years developed into an important field of research. Scholars such as Antoine Fevre and Walter Hanegraaff have contributed in placing Western esotericism firmly on the agenda of modern scholarship. The impact and recognition of this new field of research is shown by conferences and organizations being formed on the subject, academic journals and book series, with a focus on esotericism are established and academic chairs devoted to esotericism have been created. The area covered by the term Western esotericism is vast, and it includes such apparently diverse phenomena as Renaissance Hermeticism, 19th and 20th century occultism, and New Age inter alia. Somewhat crudely, Esotericism can be described as a Western form of spirituality that stresses the importance of the individual efforts to gain spiritual knowledge, or gnosis, whereby man is confronted with the divine aspect of existence. Furthermore, there usually is a strong holistic trait in esotericism where the Godhead is considered manifest in the natural world, a world interconnected by so-called correspondences. Man is seen as a microcosm of the macrocosm, the divine universe. Through increased knowledge of the individual self, it is often regarded as possible to achieve corresponding knowledge about nature and thereby about God. However, the interpretation of what Gnosis actually is, or what the correspondences 
actually are differs considerably in the history of Western esotericism. Okay, I hope that made you curious and we are now going to join Hendrik Bogdan in Sweden in one second. Just to mention before that, that we are going to be back for a musical break in about 32 minutes. And for those who really need that, there are chapter markers in this podcast. So you can jump forward and backward to music pieces, to the beginning of the interview, etc. So, but here we go to Hendrik Bogdan. Here comes the interview. I'm very happy to welcome uh, here on the Thought Hermes podcast tonight, uh, Henrik Bogdan. Henrik Bogdan, who is an academic researcher in the field of occultism. You correct me, Henrik, if, if I'm a bit blunt with that, maybe not precise enough. You're going to be much more precise about that. Good evening to you, Henrik. It's very nice to have you here. Good evening and thanks for the invitation to speak here on your podcast. I look oh, forward to... Uh, it's a pleasure. And those of you who are specialists in little accents, they know, of course, my Austrian accent, but there's a little Swedish accent from Henrik that we hear. So he's speaking to us from Sweden. And um, uh, well, Henrik, I think what we should do first is that maybe you introduce yourself a little bit. Many, many of our audience will know you, but it's the first time I think I may say that, that uh, an academic researcher in that field is here as an interview guest on the show. We'll talk more about that maybe a, a bit later on, why this is uh, the first time and why it's often difficult to, 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 to do that. But um, first, uh, maybe you tell us a little bit more about exactly what your background is. And also what interests me always is how did it all happen in your life? How did you choose that field as your academic research field? How did your interests uh, grow? How did it happen? Uh, well, I'll leave the stage to you, but um, that would be nice if we could open our interview a bit with into that direction. Okay, so let's see where to start. Um, all right, so I'm an historian of religions uh, at the University of Gothenburg here in Sweden, and I'm specializing in uh, what I call alternative forms of religion. Uh, which includes Western esotericism uh, and occultism, which is part of that field. And, uh, and my other areas of research are uh, new religious movements and Freemasonry. And uh, Freemasonry is, of course, something which can be studied within the field of Western esotericism, but not necessarily so. So I'm interested in the, uh, the border areas between Freemasonry, Western esotericism, and also the borderlines between new religious movements and Western esotericism. So these are really three different fields of research which overlap to a certain extent. Absolutely. And uh, so I wrote my, my thesis back in 2003, uh, my doctoral thesis, uh, on the development of what I called Masonic rituals of initiation. That is from the earliest forms of um, uh, rituals of initiation of Freemasonry uh, in the early 18th century and how that developed through the craft degrees into the higher degrees and then how these this type of rituals 
um, spread outside the fold of Freemasonry, as it were. And I used the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn as an example. And then I ended in the 1950s with the modern witchcraft movement to see how these sort of rituals have developed outside, totally outside the field of Freemasonry. Um, so, yeah, what led me to, to study these rituals? What led me to the field of Western esotericism? Uh, it's a good question because back in the 1990s, when I started to write my thesis, and even before that, when I was an undergraduate student, there really wasn't a field of Western esotericism as we know it today. Absolutely. This is a quite new academic field. Even though there have been scholars interested in um, aspects of what we call Western esotericism, such as Christian Kabbalah or alchemy or astrology or magic or theosophy, whatever it might be. Um, it is really from the early 2000s that we can talk about this in more general uh, perspective. That is to study these different currents or notions or practices within a broader umbrella within a broader uh, field, as it were. Um, we might return to that question later, how that Yes, we uh, should, developed. absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Um, but um, so it was, in one sense, it was really by accident, if one can believe an accident, uh, that I started to study esotericism. And that was simply that um, I was planning to study psychology uh, but for various reasons, I, I took a first level course in, in uh, the science of religion, as mm -hmm. we call it in, in Swedish, uh, or religious studies. Yes. Uh, and immediately I was hooked. I thought it was extremely fascinating, uh, especially the history of religions, that aspect. Even though I studied theology, I studied church history and sociology of religion and other aspects of religious studies was particularly history of religions that fascinated me. Um, and um, I already had an interest in esotericism. Uh, I had read, you know, Alistair Crowley, I had read Eliphas Levy, and I had, um, you know, read a little bit about theosophy and so on. So I had an understanding and I had an mm -hmm. interest in, in esoteric topics, but I didn't really see how that would fit an academic study of religion. Uh, so it was really by, by chance that one of my professors, Britt Barinestre, uh, who later became my supervisor, uh, when we discussed the topic of my uh, BA level thesis, a short mm -hmm. paper, mm -hmm. and she said, why, why don't you write about um, the Hiramic legend in Freemasonry? Okay. Yeah. And I, I never heard of it. The Harriman legend, what is that? So mm -hmm. then I started to, to read up about the Freemasonry. Um, and, um, and that opened up also the world to uh, the pioneers of Western esotericism, scholars of Western esotericism. Um, and then I continue with that. Uh, and um, my MA thesis was on the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. It was like a continuation of this. Um, and, um, and then I, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to apply for uh, a PhD candidate position at the University of Gothenburg. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to uh, try to write about Masonic rituals of initiation. Uh, and at that time, 
I had become acquainted with the work of Antoine Fèvre in Paris, who um, was, of course, a pioneer in the field of Western esotericism. He had published Access to Western Esotericism, which was really one of the very few books that tried to approach the side of Western esotericism from a more general perspective. Maybe you should tell our audience when that was Fèvre, when when he published it approximately. This was in 1994, I believe, or 1992, something like that. Yeah. I, and I think I read it, uh, read his book first time in 96. So mm-hmm. it's mid 90s. Right. Um, and um, and this oh, it really put esotericism on the map, as it were. That it, it showed that this is a field. Here we have scholars who are actually working with this. Uh, so the people that, you know, that I had been writing about uh, these Masons and the Golden Dawn people and so on. Well, actually, here we have scholars who take this very seriously and see this as expressions of a wider current or as um, as examples of something which is worthwhile to study from an academic perspective. Um, and uh, so one thing led to another, and I, I and I wrote to Febre. This was back in the days where you still wrote letters by hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so out of the blue, he received this letter from a young PhD candidate in, in Sweden, and he invited me. So we will come over and, and talk about your thesis. I would be happy to you know give you feedback, and yeah. That was it. And then I was really entered the world of this, you know, this new field of Western stereotypes, really through Fevre. And, you know, I, I got to know other people and, you know, that's how it worked. Um, so one of the things that I really uh, enjoyed about that initial um, experience of meeting somebody working with Western stereotypes was that there was this sense of, um, you know, a classical scholarly, uh, 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 how do you say that in English, uh, uh, generousness, that he was generous mm-hmm. with his time, was generous, generous with his ideas. Uh, and, um, you know, taking the time to meet with me and sit down and, and, uh, try to give me some feedback and some hints on how I could proceed with my, my research, uh, was extremely valuable to me. You need people uh, like that in a, in a, in a life, don't you? Yes, yeah. exactly. It's all these certain individuals that you meet, and only mm. a meeting can, can change really your life. And, yeah. and I think that this is one of the defining meetings that I had. Mm. Uh, that actually meeting Antoine Febre, um, and and uh, realizing, yeah, this is something that I want to do. I really want to continue uh, doing mm-hmm. this. Mm. Um, so I'm, I've tried to. Uh, Uh, adopt that approach when somebody you know, writes to me. I try to be as generous with my time as I can be, uh, and to to think about that meeting with favorite. Who knows? Maybe, maybe somebody yeah. might be uh, influenced Absolutely. by for me taking the time as well. And we profit from your generosity here that you are on this podcast as well. Thank you for that. Well, you said two things here that I wanted to just dig a little bit deeper in respect to Freemasonry because, and well, first, maybe the other question first, um, Western esotericism as a, as a, as a title, as a, as a, as a name, there are people who say that it has actually been created as a euphemism, as a euphemism for occultism. Well, I, I don't say I'm sharing that idea, but I've heard that several times. Would you agree or is how, in your opinion, did the name 
Western esotericism, uh, Western esoteric tradition, whatever, how did it really come into being? What, what was the reason or maybe the path of that, of that, of that name? Well, it, it is a problematic term, no question about it. It is, yeah. Um, and what, so what one can say is that I, the notion of something esoteric versus something exoteric, that's something which, of course, has a long, long history mm. uh, in Western culture. Uh, but not only Western culture, we can see, see similar ideas in, in particularly old world religions. Uh, we can find that in Buddhism, we can find that in... In Hinduism, we can find that in Islam and, and, and in, in Judaism yeah. and so on. The idea that there is yeah. a, a teaching for, for the people, for the masses, as it were, and then there is a reserved teaching uh, for the initiates, uh, defined in different ways. And many times that these reserved teachings are secret. Uh, and there are various reasons for that. And the most common uh, argument for keeping these teachings, these teachings secret is that uh, these teachings is the, these teachings are so powerful uh, that only the initiates can handle them, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and that could be anything from sexual symbolism to uh, a deeper understanding of the nature of God or how mm. to connect with God or through trances or yogic you know, uh, yeah. practices or, or whatever. Um, but the idea of esotericism as an ism, as a, some form of teaching or some sort of doctrine, uh, goes back to the 19th century. Uh, and um, it's the idea of, of um, which it's, it's a purely emic term. That is, it's something that practitioners themselves use something that esoterics themselves use uh, in describing what they are doing themselves. Uh, and the second difficult aspect about this is the, uh, the, the, the prefix, uh, the Western, Western esoterics, yes. which is being debated uh, and mm -hmm. has been debated for a long time. This is, I mean, this is, uh, of course, something which is being debated right now. And um, many scholars feel that uh, one should drop Western for different reasons. Um, and this is something that, that goes back to the early 2000s, this discussion. So it's, it's not really a new discussion. Yeah. Uh, but the division between a Western and the Eastern form of esotericism, that's also an emic construct. It goes yes. back to the end of uh, the 19th century again, when they have a reaction against theosophy. You know, exactly. Uh, the emphasis on... Uh, the Eastern forms of, uh, you know, um, uh, teachings that theosophy tried to promulgate. Uh, Rudolf Steiner even says that very clearly in one of his early works, I believe, that when he created anthroposophy because he wanted to get, not to get rid, but to become a more Western tendency of theosophy. Exactly. Yeah. That's a very good example. That's a very good example. Uh, Another example would be the, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. The people around that uh, mm -hmm. try to, you know, emphasize. Okay, so what is Western then? If we, if, mm -hmm. if uh, Theosophy stands for the Eastern traditions, what is the Western tradition? Uh, well, it goes back to Kabbalah. It goes back to ancient Egyptians and, and so on. You try to create your own genealogy, um, and this dichotomy between East and Western is something which. You know, the early scholars like Fevre in this field mm -hmm. um, adopted. Mm -hmm. 
to, uh, and he was very explicit about that, that uh, to him, what he's studying uh, was Western types of esotericism. He didn't study Eastern types, such as, you know, uh, Tibetan Buddhism or uh, Tantra or whatever. Um, and it is problematic, you know, for case, okay, so where do you draw the line? Uh, is there a border between the East and the West? Mm-hmm. Is it a political border? Uh, is it uh, a Eurocentric understanding that we are somehow better than the Eastern? Uh, you know, this, this post-colonial uh, critique of, of dividing the East and the West and so on. So that's yeah. one way of, of looking at that problem. Um, and uh, I mean, this question is not going to be solved easily. Uh, I think there are very good reasons for dropping Western in the study of Western esotericism, but there are also very good reasons to keep it. Mm. Um, and I haven't been convinced yet what to do. Um, and uh, yeah, well, this is something which one can discuss uh, for a long time, more than one hour that we have discussed here. Yeah. Uh, and it is something which is being discussed. For instance, yeah. as at the, the latest uh, SV conference, the European Society for the Study of Western Esoteric. In Amsterdam, yes. In Amsterdam, exactly. mm-hmm. was the final plenary discussion uh, was exactly this question. Should we keep Western yeah. in Western Esotericism? Absolutely. No, I remember that. And I remember the papers that were issued in. And by the way, there is a very good website about those papers. Also, people, I will put the link that in the web on my website so people can see that Uh, it's very, it was very interesting, that conference. But you're very, uh, well, I don't know if it was your first book, actually, but the first time that I came across you, uh, you uh, uh, as an author was the book Western Esotericism and Rituals of Initiation. And I believe that was your your PhD um, 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 thesis then, right? That you put into a book uh, afterwards, correct? Exactly. That was my thesis, which I defended in 2003 and was published in 2000, I think, well, seven. I believe. I said seven. it already. I, yeah. I, I got the second edition, which, which was a bit later, yes. Okay, mm-hmm. so I think it was 2007 by State mm-hmm. University of New York Press. Yeah. And okay. then there was... Um, a French edition also published by Adshe. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting book, really. Um, my other question, when you were talking about Freemasonry and the Golden Dawn, etc., cetera, um, you said that Freemasonry kind of, which is absolutely true, historically developed into, into the Golden Dawn. But at the same time, the question arises, why did so many things in the Western esoteric movement uh, happened suddenly at that time, at the second half of the 19th century. Was it really only a kind of reaction to theosophy and and Madame Blavatsky, or was there more to it? I mean, it was not just the Golden Dawn. There were a little other things that moved at the same time. Many of them had Masonic structures in the beginning, as you said, but um, was there more to it than a reaction to theosophy? Why did it happen at that time? I mean, do you have an answer to that question? Well, I think there are several different answers to that. Uh, and the first one, I think, is that um, uh, that we, as scholars, I think have overemphasized the fin de secular occultism in the sense that we've seen that, that something groundbreaking, the magical revival happened then, uh, that, um, that out of the blue, these uh, things happened. And that's simply not true. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there's a continuity. Um, and and 
as much things are happening in the 1850s as they are in the 1780s. You know, so there are so, so yeah. many things happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we look at specifically, you know, the, the British occultism, where the Golden Dawn stands out as uh, the, the, the most, um, you know, interesting example, perhaps. Uh, there were other organizations as well, but the Golden Dawn is really the one that has left a legacy. Sure. Um, I think there are, um, one could say that there are both internal and external reasons. And internal, by that I mean internal from the study of esotericism, you know, the, the reaction to theosophy, for instance. Uh, the fact that so many books were published by theosophists, that the market was created, uh, and that simply that people could start to publish in, in uh, theosophical journals in a way mm-hmm. that they had not been able to do before. Uh, that uh, texts were being translated, uh, were being discussed uh, in a way which was quite new. Mm-hmm. But also we have that's you know one way of looking at it, the internal aspects. But then we also have the external uh, factors that we have to look at the society. What's happening in society? Mm-hmm. Well, well, what we can see in society is that uh, modernism is you know on the on the march uh, mm-hmm. and. Many of the key aspects of modernity can be traced in occultism, as several scholars have shown. Uh, you know, before, let's say, in the 1960s and or 1950s, uh, the people who did write about occult stuff, Theodor Adorno or others in, in earlier then, um, they were very skeptical about occultism and so well occultism and even in the you know in the 1970s and 80s we have uh, Webb and other scholars who see that well occultism is is some sort of reaction against modernity. exactly yeah. it is a yeah. flight from reason it, mm-hmm. it is um, you know uh, really a way of promoting irrationality but nowadays we know that this is simply not true mm-hmm. so, uh, that many of the key concept of modernity as I said can be traced and seen directly in, in, in British occultism, at least. Um, and that uh, rather than being a reaction against modernity, one can see it as the avant-garde of modernity. Mm-hmm. Can, can you expand a little bit on that? Because I find this a very important and interesting topic because that discussion about occultism being reactionary and also being abused often by reactionist movements um, is a topic that is tricky, but is certainly not dead today. We often have that discussion, don't we? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I think it's important to keep in mind that occultism uh, is not uh, one tradition. It's sure. not one uh, unified form of thought. Certainly. Um And so what happens in Great Britain in the 1890s does not happen in Russia or in Italy or in Romania or in the US. You know, so we have different forms of occultism. Um, there is a, a really good uh, thesis on, uh, on Italian occultism, which is going to be published by Oxford University Press, hopefully next okay. year. By yeah, we're going to talk about a little later. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, by Christian yeah. Judice, uh, ah, yeah. mm-hmm. who... who Uh, argues very convincingly that uh, the, uh, the the Italian form of occultism was really, really different from the British occultism, where the Italian occultism was reactionary, conservative, 
uh, anti-modernist, really yes. anti-modernist. Whereas yes. the British occultist was, on the contrary, modernist. It yeah. embraced uh, key concepts of democracy, for instance. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody should be able to vote. Uh, women should be able to vote. Uh, so, and, um, you know, vegetarianism uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the rights of animals, uh, the exploration of the individual, the focus on the individual, which is a key concept of modernity. Uh, even it started that they would accept women as opposed to Freemasonry, which they grew out of, right? Yes, very good example of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. not only that they accepted them, but these women could also have key positions of authority, Absolutely. which Absolutely, was something yeah. you know unique, really, mm-hmm. in British society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you're absolutely right to say that, but um, nowadays I, I get the impression, and this podcast is a little bit in its in the way its audience is structured to proof of it. Um, this is a movement that has grown out mainly at that time, at least, out of Europe, of different parts of Europe in different ways. But let's take the Anglo-Saxon system that has grown out of Europe elsewhere to North America in big parts. Nowadays, 85%, even of the audience of this podcast, even though if it's Europe, produced in Europe and most of the guests nowadays are Europeans, 85% of the audience is in North America. So why, that's not just because it's a podcast, why, why do you think that movement has moved out of Europe, maybe, maybe it's, that's too much to be said, but has been carried on to North America, let's put it that way. And for a long time until today, uh, the stronger movements and practitioners and all that seem to live and practice in the United States. Or would you disagree on that? I would agree, definitely. That, but um, And that can be explained quite easily, I think, by looking at uh, the history of religion in the US, Mm -hmm. uh, where there's always been, um, I mean, it was founded by people who didn't feel at home in Europe, you know, Uh, and that many uh, religious dissidents took refuge uh, to the US. So there's always been a sense of um, uh, exploration, a sense of innovation, uh, and um, really uh, an openness to alternative understandings of religious traditions, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's a fertile ground in, in the US and has been so uh, you know, since the 18th century or even earlier than that. But even earlier, yeah. 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 Um, so, so it's not only that we have all these esoteric uh, you know, theosophy that became huge in the U.S., but also in Europe, of course, uh, and uh, that Freemasonry that became also huge in in the U.S. Much and larger. different, and different, and very, very different yeah. than back in Europe. Um, uh, but it's not because if we look also at, at all this, the, the Christian denominations, that also an explosion of different Christian dom- denominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, then when we have Buddhism or we have new religious movements, they, I mean, in the U S it's always happening much, yeah. much more than in Europe. Uh, so I think that mm-hmm. we have to, to, to put the occult in a broader context and see, well, it's only natural that it's more, things happening or has mm-hmm. happened because that's also true of the whole religious landscape 
in the US. That liberty of, of expression and, and, and yeah, yeah. I think so too. And also I think that's another important aspect is that, and I mean, you can of course interview an American scholar and he would probably <laughs> give a different answer. But my understanding is that um, uh, just judging from sociological readings of uh, people's beliefs, and that is that people are much more religious in the US. Religion is much more present. Uh, right. People go to church. Uh, yeah. People uh, have a sense of community uh, through the churches. Uh, it fulfills an important function in society. We don't have that same thing, at least not in Scandinavia, and definitely not in Sweden. Yeah, you know? yeah no, but not, not mostly in, the, in, in big parts of Europe. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think you have it. Yeah. yeah, so we're very secularized here. Uh, yeah. and been so for quite a long time. Um, and... I think that religion is much more alive. And that means that when religion is alive, you can also have people who perhaps react against that or want to have another religious truth or a mm-hmm. different way of, you know, experiences, experience mm-hmm. uh, the divine uh, by direct experience, perhaps, um, mm-hmm. which of course, you know, we can point to the new age movement, uh, yeah. how, how hugely, uh, popular that was in the US, but then it came to, of course, to Europe as well. Absolutely. Combining what you said now with what you had said a little bit earlier about Western and Eastern esotericism, um, it has been some time, so I don't have it really fresh in my mind, but I remember the book that you wrote called Occultism in a Global Perspective, right? And there you you did, I think, if I remember well, just the, you showed the opposite. You said, you said, you tried to put the whole thing not in a, in a context, uh, a local co- context or continental context, but really in the global context. Um, and did that bring for you very different results than when you look at those things more isolated in a more isolated way? Or why did you need or want to put that into a book in a more global perspective? What was, what was your idea behind that? Well, um, I've always seen the the notion of the Western and Western esotericism as problematic for the simple reason that we have all these, you know, uh, groups that we're studying or authors that we're studying and uh, the practices that we're studying, they are not limited geographically to a Western context. And Western, what is Western? Is it Europe, the US, Australia, New Zealand, yep. or, you know, you South, you South Africa yep. or, you know, Absolutely. who has limit? So it is problematic. So what I wanted to do with, with that anthology, which I co-edited with, Gordon Djurjevic, yes, uh, was really to to open up the discussion uh, mm-hmm. by asking authors to write about uh, occult occultism uh, in a non-traditional Western context. Mm-hmm. You know, so writing about it uh, in South America or uh, writing about it, you know, in Islamic world. Uh, and so on. So just to open up the discussion and see, well, we have, you know, spiritualism, for instance, we have Freemasonry in an Islamic context. What does that mean? You know, how has that been? Um, why has spiritualism or um, teachings of Crowley in, you know, in, in Latin America, South America, you know, what is it that, you know, appeals to people there? How have they not only um, uh, read an author like Crowley, uh, but how have they also reinterpreted him from their specific context? Um, so 
you know, even though at that conference that I mentioned, the SV conference in Amsterdam, yes. on that panel, I was, you know, I was one of those that, you know, defended Western, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm a defender of Western esotericism. Mm-hmm. You know, we had had a discussion. Um, but so I've, I've been, you know, for a long time, so this is an example. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, wanting to, to challenge that and see where does that lead, really. Another example is when I organized uh, the SV conference in Gothenburg, um, together with Christian Judice uh, back in 2013, uh, we, for the first time, had separate panels on Islam and Western esotericism. This had, this had not, never happened before. Mm. Uh, so we had sessions on that just to, to see, okay, so, you know, uh, how can we, you know, are we talking about the same thing or is it something different? Yeah. Uh, magic in Islamic context, for instance, astrology. Uh, is, it, is it different than, mm. you know, medieval astrology uh, in Europe? Probably not. Yes. No. So why not? So let's. Yeah. You know, so that that was the whole idea. So I've been open for that, and I'm, yeah. I'm still open yeah. for that. I like the way of this calm proceeding through an interview, like with Henrik Bogdan, um, and it's so interesting what he has to say. I think we can learn an awful lot from him. Very grateful that he accepted to be on this show. Right, I promised you some more music and some more music you will get now. Um, the next piece uh, by Hassan Ismail, who is also a listener to the show and who has accepted his music to be performed here on the show. The next piece of Hassan Ismail is called My Peace to Jerusalem. And that sounds like a very important thing to say in those times and day, especially from a person who, like Hassan, was born in Lebanon, very close to Israel, to Jerusalem, and who knows about the problems with peace in that part of the world. Right, so here we go. My Peace to Jerusalem by Hassan Ismail. Thank you. 
My Peace to Jerusalem by Hassan Ismail. We're going to hear a third piece by Hassan right after the second part of the interview with our guest, Professor Henrik Bogdan from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. And we had just started with a very interesting topic and I thought that piece of music fit rather well in here in all those differences between the origins of our traditions, of our uh, esoteric traditions, a very difficult topic, as Henrik is also going to say in one second. And we are continuing on that discussion right away. And um, listen well, I think Henrik has really, really important things to say. Okay, and right after the interview, that third piece of music, a little bit longer, this one, the one I uh, present, by Hassan Ismail today and the third piece is called The Mystic and it might be a nice and interesting piece of meditation music eight minutes right after that interview when we can think a little bit at what Han Henrik had to say to us. Let's go back to Gothenburg now. Well, I find it interesting that you're mentioning Islam and or also earlier uh, Kabbalah and Egypt, all that region, of course, with this kind of cradle of, of, of some people want to say of cradle of the of a certain kind of human civilization. But um, on the other hand, uh, we are speaking there about Asia very clearly already right yeah. so something that in others minds is eastern but we take it in the west somehow as the part of the origin of our own tradition at least some of us do right so is there is is there a key to the answer between west and east or or is that is that just a tradition that we took it as western there and then carried on like that um well it is as i said an extremely difficult question because <laughs> it depends on, on actually what you're asking for um yeah. you know um and i think that the only way to answer that question is through an historical study you know to see you know where do these ideas come from how have they been reinterpreted how have they been readapted in a new context uh, and to follow that you know as historians of yeah. religions um that's what i'm trying to do and i think you know i can just you know one example which i find very interesting is to see that uh which i've written about and I go, i'm writing more about this and that is the reception of alistair crowley in india um uh, in the 1920s now so there were you, you mean him in india not not what he brought from india to the west but how he was perceived in india exactly exactly okay. so he was read he was studied in india hmm. uh, uh, by uh, indians you know so who were you know that were you know you know part of of, of an indian theosophical milieu uh, and they were reading crowley They were reinterpreting Crowley from a Hindu perspective, you know, that they were, for instance, taking Crowley's um, dictum, do what thou wilt, the whole of the law, but interpreting it, it as some sort of karma yoga. Yeah. Uh, and it's really interesting to see, okay, so this, um, I call it, you know, a ping pong uh, match mm -hmm. in a way that you have, okay, you have Crowley, 
taking IDs from India. I was there, traveled to India. Absolutely. So taking yogic practice with him. And then he goes back and tries to, you know, present them to Western audience from a Western perspective. And then uh, his IDs are read in India, you know, and comes back and they see him as an authority on yoga. Mm-hmm. You know, and, yeah. are we seeing here, are we talking here about the time after the British mandate ended or when those, the perception happened after that or uh, during before. the British, uh, this, that, yeah, this, this is during British, British time. So this is in, mm-hmm. in the 1920s and early 1930s. Mm-hmm. So this is early. And so this is just one example. And here in this particular, you know, milieu with group, they are very, make very strong is that, you know, they published a journal called the Kalpakya, uh, and they write about Western forms of, of occultism. And they're very uh, dismissive of the West, you know, that th- these Westerns, that they use all these, you know, bad language for describing the East. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, so you have, you know, it's, it's really, you know, this, that, the problem of East and West is not only a problem for us scholars, <laughs> no, but it's sure. obviously been a problem also for practitioners. For practitioners, yes. You know, who has the yes. right, who has the legitimacy to understand yeah. and interpret, you know, key yeah. concepts. Yeah, 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 I see. I mean, maybe this goes a little bit far out of our subject here, but um, you were mentioning Crowley now and his yoga perception. And we have somebody and you, you as a, a religionswissenschaft, we call that in German, uh, study of religions, um, certainly one of the early key books that, that that people read at the time was Mirsa Eliade's History of Religions, right? Of course. Yeah. And he is also someone who brought, so to speak, a form of yoga from India uh, into Europe. And um, uh, where's the difference between Eliade and Crowley in your, in your, in that respect, in your, in your opinion? Oh, um, good question. The easy answer would be that, well, Eliade was a scholar, historian of religion, but that's taking the easy way out uh, because, (laughs) um, you know, from the, 1980, mid 1980s onwards has been a huge critique of Michel Yade. Absolutely. Uh, some very valid points. And the interesting thing I think about Michel Yade is that, well, his research was driven by his own uh, religious worldview. You know, so it, so uh, what some scholars call he was a religionist, he uh, was a traditionalist, or how you want to uh, define that. But um, and yoga is an important aspect of his understanding of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the difference between the, the sacred uh, and the profane. You know, his mm-hmm. division that he, that he you know, somehow based his whole uh, idea of religious studies upon this, uh, these two concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he had experienced that through yogic practices. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by taking those... Uh, uh, personal experiences, he tried to understand them scholarly or academically, you know, by seeing other uh, similar patterns in in religion, you know, we have these uh, encounters with the divine or with with the sacred, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. Mm hierophanies and so on. Um, But, you know, it's it's to a certain extent, you know, Crowley and Mircea they, you know, 
have many similarities uh, at I that time. That. At that time, you know, we had this um, because what I also find interesting, and I'm actually writing an article about this going to publish by Quattro Correlati Research Lodge, okay. uh, looking about the, the esoteric school of, of Freemasonry. And the interesting thing here is that how did esotericists and the early pioneers of religious studies approach the study of religion? Well, they did it through a comparative uh, methodology. You know, by comparing religions, you find similarities. Um, and, and this comparative um, uh, method was used by people like uh, Blavatsky and Crowley yeah. as well. You know, so they had this comparative approach to religion, uh, and thereby, you know, the, the, the claim that the way to define, you know, the religion, that you know, the yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the true religion, or yeah. as Crowley uh, argued, well, you know, by by doing comparative study, we'll, we can discard all the moral aspects of religion and only focus on the techniques, you know, for reaching, yeah. uh, you know, uh, transformative experiences. Yeah. Call it Holy yeah. Garden Angel or Samadhi or whatever. Yeah. Call it. yeah, yeah. And that way, opening the way to chaos magic as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Okay, let's move to, to before we come to Oxford uh, Press. But before that, I would like to ask you some a question that, that is being asked a lot in Masonic circles. But I thought also, I think, um, occupies brains that are not Masons at all. And um, that it is the position of esoteric Freemasonry today. Um, when you look at it, um, you get the impression when you see publications, books, talks that are done that well, maybe we should define what esoteric Freemasonry is first, but um, that there is a movement that goes more and more again towards esoteric Freemasonry. Now, is that an impression that is personal to me that I have only? Would you share that impression? And if so, why and and uh, what's your what's your take? What's your take on that? My take on that is that it is true that mm -hmm. we can see that there is an emphasis generally among Freemasons on esotericism again, um, and I think that what I mean by this is that you can actually see this emphasis on on uh, on, on on an esoteric interpretation of Freemasonry. You can see that. In the 18th century, clearly, in several of the high degree systems, it's obvious, but also in the craft degrees. And how were people you know, interpreting the rituals? You know, how did they interpret the hieramic legend of the third degree, for instance? Um, well, you know, this more moral understanding was also present already in the 18th century, but it was in uh, combination with esoteric understandings. Mm -hmm. And here we have, you know, some very good scholars who've done really nice work on that, uh, especially Jan Snook, who I think yes. is, you know, the, the absolutely greatest absolutely, um, scholar of Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, then we can see that what, what happens is in the 19th century is that these more esoteric understandings, for, like alchemical interpretations or uh, it's more mystical that you want to do, uh, read some sort of union mystica through the third degree with, with Christ or whatever, mm -hmm. um, that these tend to, you know, be, be downplayed. And then you emphasize instead the more moral aspects. Um, and then towards the end of the uh, 19th century, 
we see a resurgence of interest in the more esoteric interpretations. Mm. And how can we see that? Well, we can see that by looking at the books that were published, Masonic books, right. written by Masons for Masons. You know, so how did they, you know, what sort of symbols, uh, how did they interpret it, uh, and so on. And we can also look at something which, one of my uh, interests is to look at Masonic libraries. There you can see clearly uh, what sort of books that were being bought by the Masonic libraries, that they were buying, you know, alchemical manuscripts. They were buying uh, magical uh, handbooks and texts and so on uh, towards the end of the um, uh, 19th century, but also in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens is that around the First World War, again, this tends to be downplayed. Right. And now, now again, we see, you know, resurgence of interest. And you can see that by books being published, for instance, and articles uh, at Masonic conferences, the topics and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it goes in waves. And you can take these waves and then just compare those waves with the interest of esotericism generally in society. And you will see that they follow the same pattern. So mm-hmm. by studying Freemasonry and the interest in esotericism in Freemasonry, we'll see, well, it's a mirror of what's happening in society yeah, at large. Sure. That's my Sure. Opinion. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see that. Do you think it is just cyclic, that interest, or is it influenced? I mean, the general interest, not just Masonic. I get you that it's, it's a mirror. I, I agree. But that interest in general, is that cyclic because just it returns every whatever, 150 years or whatever? Or is it because what happens in the world, in the material world, so to speak, um, influences would maybe big times of war, like first or second world war, lower the interest in esoteric, the esoteric field, because, well, we have other things to do. And the moral values are more important than, than, than esotericism. Or, or is there, what pattern do you think that cycle follows? Oh, um, I wish I had a good answer to that. I mean, I, first of all, I think it's, it's definitely so that we can see, you know, things happening in society that will have an effect on the religious landscape, including esotericism. Uh, so, for instance, with First World War, uh, yeah, well, you know, it had a direct consequence that many uh, uh, publishers, many uh, occult, small occult groups had to, you know, close down the business because yeah. all the men yeah. went out to war. Um, but on the other hand, you had all these spiritualistic churches and spiritualistic s- circles that boomed instead because mm-hmm. people wanted to get in contact with the di- people who had died. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. well, def- here's a good example that you can see, well, yes, well, you know, Golden Dawn, you know, most of them, you know, tend to disappear. They, you know, had very little activities, sure. uh, like the Ahathor uh, Lodge in Paris, uh, very few activities, but on the other hand, the spiritualists you know, uh, had a boom. Uh, and it continued for a while, uh, re- also after uh, the First World War. Um, so yes, I think that this is something that needs to be studied even more. You know, to, you know, the interest today, for instance, in esotericism. Um, you know, we have scholars um, who argue that, well, the occult today is more popular than ever, you know, or culture. It's everywhere around us now. Or culture is a word. Three, yeah, yes, or culture. Exactly. It's, uh, it's everywhere around us in popular culture. Uh, it's not a, some sort of rejected knowledge. It's uh, a, a cherished knowledge everywhere around us. Yeah. Um, 
And how do we explain that? Now, what are the sociological reasons for why there seems to be such a huge, not only seems, but there is such a huge interest in esotericism today? Uh, is it because of, um, who knows, that uh, these grand narratives of falling apart, the, you know, the political, the religious grand narratives uh, are mm-hmm. falling apart, and, and esotericism tends to be more focused on the individual, you know, yeah, that the individual yeah. needs to yeah. be control of his own uh, reality, you know, yeah. many yeah. forms of occultism is, you know, yeah. about control. Of course, of course. Uh, so yeah. is that the reason? Mm. I don't know. It, it could be. Mm. Well, when no culture becomes mainstream, that's at least linguistically a contradiction. <laughs> it is, yes. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, okay, well, um, before we And, but that's now really the link to, to when we speak about your, your work at Oxford Studies uh, in Westminster. There's met that book series where you are the editor now of. But before we go there, um, the, I get the impression, and I said that in my little intro, that uh, I have the impression that more academic work is being done uh, in the field of esotericism in general. Um, at least maybe it's because I'm more and more interested personally, but there is more and more coming up things like the Amsterdam conference or the Gothenburg conference that you mentioned. And there are certain universities who have now um, colleagues of yours who work in the same field, etc. That did not exist 20, 30, 40 years ago, really, uh, or maybe very hidden. But I, I, I don't know about it, at least. Maybe you correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but um, do you think a There is a reason for that. And why is there that academic interest now? Why is it also allowed ac- to be academically interested? One had to, f- but one still has sometimes the feeling that it's a tricky thing to do to be an academic and to be taken seriously among other academics when you do that kind of study. What's your personal experience on that, and what's your take on that? I can see that there's a great change that happens as long as I've been a scholar, you know, since the mm-hmm. uh, mid 90s until today, uh, that there used to be a, a, a very skeptical um, approach to esoterics by non-esoteric specialists, that they really, you know, you know, wondered why should one study these marginal, irrational, strange um, uh, currents and And there are, you know, um, several reasons for this. Um, and one of the reasons which I usually, you know, bring up with my students when, when, when I introduce Western esotericism is to say that, well, if you look at, you know, first of all, most scholars dealing with Western esotericism are religious studies scholars. Not, you know, yes. we have other, we have art historians, we have, you know, uh, historians of science, we have uh, literature studies and, uh, and philosophy. So yes, so it's, it's growing. Yes. It's, it's, it's uh, mm-hmm. one of the you know, strength of the study of Western studies today is the fact that it is a multidisciplinary uh, field of research. Yeah. So it's so, so much that you, you can study about it. But yeah. w- when the field was um, being, um, born as it were mm-hmm. in the early 2000s it was in the in the channels of uh, religious studies so it was at conferences of religious studies that it's special sessions were held in western esotericism it was in journals devoted to religious studies that scholars started to write about 
things like the Golden Dawn or things like magic or theosophy and so on. So it was the connection with religious studies was very strong. Uh, it was problematic for the simple mm-hmm. reason that here in Europe, um, the history of religious studies can be seen as, you know, as a two, two, two separate rooms. One room was devoted to theology. And theology dealt with the Western tradition, Christianity, you know? Yes. And then you have yes. church history and all those people, you know, mm-hmm. part of theology. Mm-hmm. And then you had historians of religion. And the historians of religion, they studied either dead religions, mm. ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, or whatever, or they studied religions far away. Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, um, Aborig- Aboriginal rituals in Australia, and so on. Almost so, like an Orientalist interest, yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how that's how it was divided when you know religious studies mm-hmm. was born as a field in the late mm-hmm. 19th century. And this made it problematic for our field, Western esotericism, mm-hmm. in that uh, who should study this? The theologians thought that this is not Christianity. You know, on the contrary, yeah. many of these people are, they are you know, heretics. You know, who yeah. wants to study? It's not, this is not theology. This is not yeah. church history. We want, yeah. don't want to study that. Uh, and then you had historians of science. No, well, you know, alchemy, that's pseudo chemistry, you know, or yeah, yeah, astrology. Yeah. That's, that's not astronomy. That's something, you know, that's people who don't know what they're talking about, especially modern forms. It's even worse. So mm-hmm. you had this, problematic situation that you had all these important currents in Western culture that nobody studied, mm. you know? Mm. Mm. Um, but today the situation is still much is, has, has changed. Mm. Um, and I think the reasons for why it has changed is number one, due to, you know, pioneers like Antoine Febvre, uh, like Wouter Hanegraaff, uh, yeah. like Olaf Hammer and, yeah. and other scholars who were pioneers and Jan Schnook in the, in the terms of Freemasonry, yes. that they were really, that they were excellent scholars, you know, so they, they could, you know, they, they presented the research uh, in a way that, you know, people had difficulty of... They had the credibility to, to, yes, to carry exactly. that, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then you also had uh, the fact that you had, you know, private individuals who could go in and sponsor also, for instance, uh, the department in Amsterdam, which is really the hub of Western esotericism. Yes. So with, without Rosalie van Basten, I think that the situation would have looked very, very different. So we had this uh, remarkable woman who saw the uh, saw the value of the academic study of Western esotericism and decided to, to fund the department. You know? mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is individuals like that that has you know made the... F- made it feel possible to exist. Mm-hmm. Once you have made that, you know, the possibility to be there, uh, it has just followed that you have so many brilliant scholars now, young scholars in particular, who are just who are brilliant and, and, and work hard. And when you compare the study of esotericism, I think so, at least the sort of religion with some other forms of history of religions, you can say it's much more dynamic what's happening in the field of mm-hmm. Western esotericism in terms of, um, uh, um, yeah, the uh, theoretical uh, awareness, the uh, uh, the groundbreaking research that is being done, um, 
And it's, I think that one of the reasons why this is so important, and that is that what the field of Western esotericism is, is really doing, it's, it's, I think Walter Hanegraaff has argued for this very nicely in his book, um, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Um, and that is that the study of Western esotericism really wants to rewrite the history of, of Western culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that these currents or persons and, and practices that we are studying, even though they might have been rejected, that's his main argument, uh, from the official history, uh, it doesn't mean that they did not have a huge impact on Western culture. Um, so let's take, you know, some, some examples like, you know, the classical example, Isaac Newton, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody knows this, that, well, you know, that, uh, he's the father of the, the scientific worldview. Yeah, we know that. And we know also that, you know, that, uh, that the large body of his uh, surviving manuscripts were alchemical and hermetic. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that, that was a problem to science of uh, historians of, of science. So how should they deal with that? Well, you know, the argument was, well, that's his private um, uh, speculations has nothing to do with scientific research. And that's mm. today we know that's not true. That's not true. Exactly. No, so, yeah. and we can just, you know, take uh, uh, like Hilmar Klint now, this Swedish artist yeah. that is yeah. receiving so much uh, yeah. attention, well-deserved attention. Uh, yeah. uh, again, if you don't place her in the context of theosophy and anthroposophy, uh, and spiritualism, yeah, yeah. Uh, you cannot understand the paintings. Absolutely. And that's yeah. just one example. We have so many authors who have formed, shaped Western culture, but we it's like we have only seen only one aspect of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that in the near future it would be good for the study of Western esotericism to, be, um, to become an independent current in the academic sense i mean or is it still better for both sides maybe or especially for western esotericism studies to be part of the of the department of of history of religions of religious studies personally i think it's important that uh, that we are part of religious studies uh, yeah. But it, it does. It, I need to, to, to expand on that a bit, um, because on the one hand, we can see that the humanities uh, is characterized by a, a fragmentation uh, that we have all these specialists that creating their own sm- small small fields of mm-hmm. research, and that they don't interact with each other, uh, and, yes. that, and that humanities just becomes fragmented, and with the possibility that it might just fall apart. You know, that mm-hmm. due to economic mm-hmm. cuts and so on, that, that people outside of humanities many times don't see the value of the humanities. That they, they, yes. there's a small niche uh, expertise, which is not useful because there's no price tag connected to it. Sure. You know? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and this is not, you know, unique for the study of Western hysteresis. You know, the whole humanities across to, you know, the whole globe is yeah. facing this problem. And yeah. so by creating subfields within subfields within subfields you know it's it's problematic might fall apart you mean yeah you become weaker and weaker Mm -hmm. so that's why i think it's Mm -hmm. important that we uh, that we 
that, for instance, that within religious studies, that uh, esotericism should be an inter- in integrated part in that. So, for instance, at the University of Gothenburg, for a long time, um, uh, you know, A-level students when they studied, you know, Islam and Buddhism and uh, you know all these world religions and so on, they also had to study Western esotericism. Okay. It was part of okay. religious studies. So we, um, we did not have separate courses. Then, but now this has changed. Now we have separate courses. But then, mm-hmm. this, this, and that, that was my ambition. I wanted to integrate this, so that you could see that this is just yeah. one other example of the same field. You know, yeah, this yeah. Is really that makes stuff. sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. So, but on the other hand, just saying that or arguing that uh, Western esotericism should be only something for religious scholars is wrong, you know, because we have yeah. some of the best scholars are not sc- scholars of religious studies in the field, you know, uh, yeah. for literature studies, for instance, or art history, as I mentioned before, extremely important aspects of the study of Western esotericism. Uh, so, so in, in a sense, I think it's important to, you know, to have this umbrella term for this field and that this field should be studied from different perspectives Mm-hmm. Uh, by scholars who are, you know, identify themselves as scholars of religion or scholars of literature studies that don't only identify themselves as esotericist experts. You see? Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, you proved yourself right because when you talked about my, when you gave the answer to my question about why North America had that strong movement, if you didn't know about the religious movements, how they worked there, then you wouldn't be able to give that answer, for example. So that's that's a good, exa- good example of why it's important not to separate uh, things. Yeah. Well, um, let's finally come to, to your, uh, I don't know how long, how, how long you have been doing that already, but I, I only discovered it about half a, half a year ago that you were now the editor of the series called Oxford Studies in Western Esotericism, a, a, a book series published by Oxford University Press. And so, well, tell us a little about it, about A, since when have you been doing this and what's your aim uh, with that series? What, what do you want to achieve what who do you want to publish what do you want to publish there well uh, so this is um, as you said uh, a series specifically devoted to the study of western esotericism mm-hmm. as, uh, published by oxford university press in the u.s uh, there are two branches now or three branches right. one in in the uk one in india yeah. and one in in, in the north america so this is the north american branch okay and um, the reason why i got in contact with Oxford Nurse Press and proposed that we should have this series is just that I think that Oxford Nurse Press is the best academic publisher in terms I of... I would agree, yeah. <laughs> in terms of uh, the quality of the books, in terms of uh, the distribution, in terms of uh, the the amount of work that they put into the books. And I had direct experience of this because I had co-edited a book on Alistair Crowley, Alistair Crowley, Western Esotericism, published mm-hmm. in 2012, uh, which was the first academic anthology on Crowley. Okay. Um, and, and I was very happy with uh, working with Oxford University Press mm-hmm. um, in terms of the, the copy editing and all, all the things that they did, which many mm-hmm. academic publishers don't do today. 
know, they, they leave that for the editors, you know, they don't, for the scholars, they don't leave, you know, they don't have yeah. experts yeah. doing it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they, and, and they charge ridiculously amounts of money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, all these factors combined, I thought it was, you know, that there is really, there, there's a market for high quality, uh, academic books on esotericism. Um, and, um, no, it's and I, I collected a very good team of um, members of the editorial board, and um, and uh, yeah, I, mean, I think I published eleven books so far in the series. Uh, when did it all start? When did when did it start this 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 series? I think it was four years ago. Okay, uh, if I remember correctly, the years fly by so quickly, but I think it's four years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so and we have many many uh, more books coming out soon in the series. So um, and and I'm really happy with it. Um, and um, there are other uh, series as well. That there's the Arias book series published by Brill, which has published an amazing amount of very very good books on esotericism. Also edited now by Marco Passi. Um, and uh, but I think that we um, re- really have a different. Um, um, markets in mind, I think, in a sense yeah, that yeah. the Brill has the whole library world, which I can cater, yeah, uh, and yeah, they are quite yeah. expensive. Uh, whereas uh, Oxford can be, most of the books can be bought by anybody. It's a bit know? more affordable. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and probably also the, as as far as I see it, of course, that's also very personal. But the, the it's a broader it's a broader approach that you take in. In the choice of in the choice of matters and what you're talking about in those books, um, uh, highly interesting and also there I will put the link on the on the website on the on the show notes of this of this show that people can find the link to that series. Well, Henrik, we're coming towards the end of our talk already. Um, it's flying the time, but before we go. Um, what are your next plans that uh, you would like to share with us? Maybe, I don't know, maybe you have a new book in the making or maybe there are uh, uh, important new aspects in your research that you would like to talk about. Is there anything that we that we should look forward to that we should have our eyes open regarding Henry Bogdan? Oh, uh, I have several books which I'm working on, but I think <laughs> that's uh, one of the books which I'm most excited about right now is um, I'm editing uh, the collected works of uh, Charles Stansfeld Jones, uh, also known as Frater Achad, who oh, was, right. uh, yeah, was an, uh, uh, an occultist in, uh, living in uh, North America, yeah. in Canada for a long time of his life, who uh, wrote uh, a few books in the early 1920s. He was uh, proclaimed as Elsa Crowley's magical son, um, and, uh, there's lots of interesting unpublished materials, which I'm editing together with his published works. Uh, and this is published by a small publisher in the UK called Starfire Publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really, you know, enjoy working. I've, I've done, I think two books so far also with Starfire. Um, 
and I enjoy working with you know um, a more specialist publisher also. So mm -hmm. there are quite a few nice ones around, and let's hope that what you said about First World War that this damned COVID crisis doesn't doesn't kill too many of those really interesting publishers that are around in the field of. <laughs> let's hope so. Let's hope so. Yeah. When is that book about Frater Arkad going to be published? Do you have an idea? Uh, I hope that the first volume is going to come out this year in, uh, in okay. late winter. Great. So we'll keep an eye open on that. Well, Henrik, that was really very pleasant to talk to you and very interesting. And, and, and thank you for being so precise and, and open to all those questions. Um, and uh, good luck with all your coming projects. And let's stay in touch. And thank you for being my guest here tonight on the Thought Hermes podcast. Thank you for having me.
the mystic our third piece today performed and written by lebanese phoenician musician hassan ismail who lives now in phoenix arizona and who has released three albums already and you find all the details on our show notes and a very very big thank you to henrik bogdan who was our guest today gave uh, an very very interesting talk with uh, for us here today i think and i'm very grateful that he was here um now we will um have to think a lot and we are very much looking forward also to those other at least two guests that we will have in the next few weeks where next couple of months let's say who will also be uh, academic researchers and who will also talk to us about their input they can give into our western esoteric and occult worlds right well that's the end of episode five already and um, thank you again for being with us here today you certainly want to know what's up for next week well i'm going to tell you next week our guest is david shoemaker David Shoemaker, as many of you, I'm sure, do know, he is an important member of the OTO and AA since 1993. In his other life, he's a clinical psychologist in private practice. He has many years of experience in training students in the OTO and AA traditions. He's also the chancellor of the Temple of the Silver Star um, in uh, the west of the United States, and he's Sovereign Grand Inspector General of the US Grand Lodge of the OTO. And many of you know, might know him also from his very popular podcast, which I must say I have learned a lot from over the years. His podcast is called Living Selima. Right, and he will be our guest next week on August 9. Okay, well, I think that's all for today. Do take care in those difficult times, in those times where we have to really be careful to look after ourselves and those close to us and to the whole world. I think it's more important than ever. And with our occult and esoteric work, I think if we are well-intended, we can do a lot about this. Well, that's all for today. I can only say... Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.